Welcome back to Fracktown Gumshoe, an audio mystery featuring Niccolo Fitzhugh, based on the novels by Deborah K. Gaskill at DebraGaskillNovels.com. Season 1, Call Fitz. Chapter 6. No gunshot victims showed up at Fawcettville General Hospital. I checked. The sour, middle-aged woman in happy-faced scrubs at the emergency room desk looked at me over her glasses. Why do you need to know? she asked. I was chasing a man down an alley. He turned the corner. I heard a gunshot. When I turned the corner, he was gone, or what was left of him. And you don't think the staff here would call the police if a gunshot victim showed up? I didn't say that. If we had a gunshot victim here, this place would be crawling with cops. Do you see any cops here now? No. She rolled her eyes like I was the dumbest asshole she'd seen all day. Maybe I was, but it wasn't worth my time to explain my case or myself to her. I walked out the door. I didn't expect Rivera, or what was left of him, to show up, but I had to ask. If he made it to Akron or Steubenville alive, I'd be surprised. If he were dead, whoever shot him would most likely dump the body on a slag heap at some abandoned steel mill, where it wouldn't be found until the skeleton was picked bare. I returned to my office to think over everything I found out. Mac Brewster wouldn't talk to me until he submitted his retirement papers, but what he wanted to tell me probably led more into the floundering marriage that was infecting Chief Monroe's professional career. Brewster was too much of a boy scout to kill a fly, much less some drunk whore. I pulled out my notebook and dialed one of the phone numbers Poole gave me. This is you, Fitzhugh? Poole told me you'd be calling. Charlie Horton was one of Road Anarchy's officers and one of my frequent flyers when I was a cop. Plenty of drug abuse, mostly fighting and some auto theft. It was his tattooed knuckles I saw in Poole's cell phone photo. Yeah, Charlie, it's me. I need you to come down to my office and talk to me about the birthday party Jacob Poole had for his daughter Saturday night. You still a cop? Nope. I'm a PI now. Michael Outwater's attorney hired me to do some investigation. Then I don't have to do shit, do I? I mean, we can always issue a subpoena and depose you. Go ahead. So the cake was good? Yeah, it was. You know me, Fitz. I love little girls and their birthday parties. Charlie hung up. I wanted to vomit. So... If Charlie was to be believed, Jacob Poole was at his sister's house, in a room full of goons, sharing birthday cake with a daughter he'd had with Gina. The timestamp on the photo proved he didn't kill Gina, even if he wasn't an Akron. I made a note to tell Ambrosi. Atwater admitted he argued with the victim over her requesting a DNA test, but said his wounds came back from a drunken fall, a story that was thin at best. As much as Ambrosi wanted to believe his client was innocent, I still wasn't buying it. I wasn't being paid to believe in someone. I was being paid to do a job. I needed to talk to Reno Elliott. It was two in the morning when I opened the door at Puccini's coffee shop. The long-haired college student, his 
ponytail corralled in a hairnet, looked up from whatever book he was reading and stood up from his seat near the cash register. The place still looked like a hangout for teenage girls in poodle skirts who babbled about Bobby Darren. The red and white striped awning over the front window matched each booth's upholstery lining up on the other side of the glass. The stools at the counter were patent leather red. Next to the cash register was a display case where rows of Joe Puka's famous Italian pastries sat, waiting to be purchased. Pizzelles, biscotti, Italian donuts called bomboloni and Chardona Siciliani, tiny sweet cookie shells filled with mascarpone or ricotta cheese. Inside the case, a sheet of paper clung to the glass with a yellow cracked adhesive tape. We do wedding cakes was written in fading ink. A huge brass espresso machine, the same one I'd operated as a teenager, sat on the other side of the counter, surrounded by tiny white espresso cups and saucers. Bottles of flavored syrup had attention along the mirror behind it. The only nod to this century was the electronic cash register in the industrial strength coffee machine. I sat down at the counter and ordered a decaf and a cannoli. So I'm looking for a cop named Elliot. He works nights. Does he come in here at all? I asked when the kid brought my order. Big black guy? Bald? Maybe mid-thirties? That would be him. Not tonight. I overheard him talking last week about going to see family someplace. I nodded and took a sip of decaf. And maybe he's on the run from a murder. He's popular, though. How's that? You're the second person tonight who's been in here looking for him. Is that so? Who else was looking for him? Some Latino guy in a jacket and a black baseball cap. What? What time did he come in? Rivera was here? He couldn't have been. He'd been shot. I heard it myself. Unless Rivera had the, done the shooting and had been the one to drag the body off. If that's the case, who's this latest victim? The Latino guy. Does he come here often? The kid just shrugged. Maybe a couple times a week. He and the cop would sit over there and have a cup of coffee. He pointed to a booth in the corner, one that gave customers a good view of the sidewalk without being seen. What did they talk about? I never paid attention. They didn't argue, though. Neither of them ever got loud at any rate. I figured he was an undercover cop or something. They'd talk for maybe half an hour. Then they'd leave, but never at the same time. They were good tippers. Did they come in here about the same time every week? The kid thought about it a little bit before he answered. Yeah, kinda. They'd come in anywhere between 2 and 3.30 usually. Cops on nights get lunch breaks, right? I figured they were on lunch break. Thanks. I took a bite of my cannoli and the kid walked back to his seat beside the cash register. When I finished, I paid my bill and got back into the excursion. As I drove through Fawcettville's dark streets, some of this shit was starting to fit together. The same thug who was tailing me knew the crooked cop and met up with him on a regular basis. That same cop, Reno Elliott, had to be intimidating Gina Cantalini. Maybe he even killed her. That would explain why nobody wanted me looking into the case. Why it would just be easier to let Atwater hang for a murder. Monroe had too many strikes against him. If he had a crooked cop on the force, it would be just one more reason why the city manager would can his ass. If he had a cop who killed a hooker, it was even worse. 
Maybe what Mac Brewster had to tell me was more than just the long, sad tale of Chief Nathaniel Monroe ruining his professional career. Maybe I should sit down with him again and listen to what he had to say. But that still didn't explain what made Gina a target. Maybe it was nothing more than covering up the actions of a bad cop to save Chief Monroe's ass. If his position with the city was as precarious as Brewster told me, and he knew he had a bad apple in his basket, along with the sleazy wife in his bed, it could spell the end of his time at the helm of the FPD. I smiled as I drove. What I wouldn't give to be the one to push Chief Monroe out the door. I stopped the excursion at the intersection and realized where I was. Three houses down on the right was the tutor I'd shared with Grace. I'd unconsciously driven back home. As I pulled to the curb, a soft light shone from the front bedroom. I knew it was the light on the nightstand beside the brass bed. Gracie was a notorious night owl. She probably couldn't sleep again and was probably reading or grading papers from her music theory class. At least, I assumed she was. Maybe she wasn't alone. Maybe Van Hoven was up there with her. Maybe she wasn't grading papers. I sat behind the wheel, chewing my thumbnail. I met Gracie when money went missing from the college music department and the college hired me to do the quiet digging before calling the cops. I stood outside her office door, letting the warm sounds of her cello fill the hallway before I knocked. The tall beauty answered the door and took my breath away. Long, slim fingers of one hand held her cello's neck in the bow as she reached out to shake my hand with the other. A loose skirt showed off thin hips and her black curly hair hung around a white boat-necked blouse. Her dark eyes met mine, shooting something I'd never felt deep in my gut, and I couldn't speak. Well, you're either the oldest student I ever had request lessons, or you're the private dick that everyone is bitching about, she said. I'm... I'm the... The... I stammered. This didn't happen to a wop like me. I was the one who could coax the panties off any woman in record time. I didn't stand in anyone's doorway at a loss for words, but now, here I was. Dumb as a boy at his first middle school dance. You're the dick. I get it. Come in. Let's get this over with. The interview went well. Not that the beautiful Dr. Darcy was ever a suspect. Eventually, the department secretary, a little old lady, verged on terminal virginity and whose eyes got largest saucers every time I entered the department offices, admitted to forging department checks when her trips to the wheeling West Virginia casinos didn't go as planned. She paid everything back and quietly retired at the end of the academic year. No charges were ever filed. Meanwhile, Dr. Grace Darcy and I met every day for lunch on the college commons. We had dinner at her Tudor-style house in the hills after symphony rehearsals and nights Dear God, the nights. I closed my eyes as if that could keep away the pain of what I'd lost. I was truly the frog who'd been kissed by the princess, although our marriage didn't lead to any magic transformation on my part. Simultaneously elegant and rough-edged, the Juilliard and Yale-educated doctor of philosophy and the troll-like son of a steel-town beat cop were the odd couple at faculty events, the subject of gossip at the symphony, but... We didn't care. We were happy. Gracie opened up worlds to me I never would have experienced without her. There were performances with other small symphonies around the country and music education conferences across the globe. She dragged me to Eisenach in Leipzig, Germany one summer to teach me about Johann Sebastian Bach. 
She taught me about legendary cellists, Casals, Rostropovich, and Yo-Yo Ma. I taught her how to shoot a beer can off a fence post. I still remember her delighted squeal when she hit one dead on. I knew this frog married a princess when, just before our wedding, we spent Christmas at her folks' place in Greenwich, Connecticut. Her dour, reserved family lived in a ritzy stone house that would encompass four small blocks of new Tivoli clapboard houses. Jesus Christ, I said as the wrought iron gates opened and Gracie drove our rented Toyota up the circular brick driveway. Yeah, it isn't much of a home, Gracie said ruefully. This place, the condo in St. Thomas, and the place in Aspen. You're fucking kidding me, right? Nope. She shook her head. My father was a heart surgeon and mother can claim a direct line back to the pilgrims. I whistled low as we stepped from the car and I lifted our suitcase from the back seat. I was entering a world I knew nothing about. We'd passed estate after palatial estate on our way home from the airport, and the air got more rarefied. This was not a place a Dago Mick like myself was likely to be seen or welcomed. Thirty years ago, I would have been intimidated by the high-priced lifestyle. Then again, thirty years ago, I never would have landed anybody as classy as Grace Darcy. And before we go in the door, I need you to know that my parents always felt very disappointed that I didn't marry a hedge fund manager and become the junior league stay-at-home social princess with 2.4 spoiled brats. They also don't consider me a real doctor and have equally as many disappointments about my brother. What, what horrible things did he do? He got addicted to heroin, robbed a convenience store, and spent four years behind bars in his 20s. I could see how an academic life teaching college students to play the cello would be a horrible burden for a parent to hear, Dr. Darcy. I slipped my arm around her waist. Gracie smiled and kissed me. My brother was a violinist, she continued as we walked across the brick driveway to the wide double doors. After prison, he started a music program for at-risk inner-city youth. While I was at Juilliard, I spent summers teaching cello to some of them. I decided I wanted to teach after he died of an overdose just a few years later. Even at some provincial college in a has-been Ohio steel town. Especially in a has-been Ohio steel town. After dinner, we stood in Darcy's dark parlor, decorated extravagantly for the holiday, holding sterling silver cups of eggnog spiked with shivas in front of a roaring fire. What exactly does our daughter see in you, Mr. Fitzhugh? Mrs. Darcy asked. I'm not sure, I said. I just know she loves me, and that's enough for me. Mrs. Darcy, she never asked me to call her anything but Mrs. Darcy, twisted her pearls and pursed her lips. Leaning on the mahogany mantel, Dr. Darcy looked over his half-glasses at me but didn't speak. We never went back. Yeah, Gracie was a catch on a lot of different levels. And after six years, it's ruined. If I went to the door and knocked, would she let me in? Would she curse me for coming at this ungodly hour? Or if she was alone, would she open the door and welcome me in? Into her arms? Or her bed? Uh, probably not, judging from the conversation we had the other day. Maybe that Van Hoven asshole was there, just as I imagined, even though there were no strange cars in the driveway. Maybe he really was in her bed, where I should be. Maybe she was right. Maybe I should sign the papers and we should move on. 
I put the excursion back into gear and drove back to the office. That concludes Chapter 6 of Season 1, Call Fits. Fracktown Gumshoe is read and produced by Scott H. Shelton at scottyboombox.com. Every week, a new chapter will be released. So subscribe now on iTunes. We are also on Podbean and Stitcher. Or if you can't wait to find out the ending, you can go by the book or the ebook at deboragaskillnovels.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>